0: Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. Uh, we've got a special edition episode of the Common Bridge today, and it's about COVID-19. There's been new information about the coronavirus. Case counts are up. There's been a lot of reporting on this. And I know it's confusing to hear terms tossed about and different interpretations of the data. But one of the things that we do on the Common Bridge is we get experts in the field who can tell us what's happening from the seat that they sit in. And today, we are very fortunate to have Rob Casalew. Rob has been a longtime healthcare executive. His full biography is on the website, richardhelpy.com. Rob, welcome to the Common Bridge.
1: Thank you, Rich. It's really good to be with you. Rob, tell
0: us just a quick snapshot of your career arc, academic preparation, and and what's the job you're doing today?
1: Well, my, uh, you know, starting with academics, cause tomorrow's a big day for us with the Michigan, Michigan state football game, Rich. But I, uh, went to the university of Michigan for both my undergraduate and graduate work. I did economics as an undergrad and then an MBA and an MHA as a graduate student. Um, I, um, an, M- an MHA is
0: a master's of healthcare administration.
1: Correct. And, uh, I actually started my career in the auto industry. I was, uh, about 10 years in the auto industry on the, uh, supply side, working for one of the major suppliers to the OEMs, traveled the world. It was a great experience, but I had always wanted to be in healthcare. So I went back, uh, to school, ended up as a student intern at Providence Hospital in Southfield, Michigan, working for a uh, Catholic health system and, uh, now, 30-plus years later, I'm still in Catholic health care. My current role, though, is now at Trinity Health, and I'm the CEO of Trinity Health Michigan and Georgia and Florida. Trinity is one of the largest national systems in the country in 22 states, and I work as the regional CEO in three of those states.
0: And how many hospital facilities, employees, physicians are in that area of responsibility for you?
1: Well, um, Overall, there's a, a, a 12 hospitals and uh, 35,000 uh, employees, colleagues, as we refer to them. In Michigan specifically, we have seven hospitals. We have 25,000 colleagues uh, across the state of Michigan.
0: So yeah. Rob Casalew is coming to us as someone that's had to deal firsthand with the COVID-19 pandemic. So today, I'm expecting we're going to have some education on what's behind the COVID numbers. We've heard this news about new highs in coronavirus cases and coronavirus deaths. Look, six or seven months ago, healthcare providers were overwhelmed. Today, we hear about the frontline heroics, and hopefully we'll get an update and see if we're better prepared for what could be a second wave. So I'm expecting a real educational session. So Rob, from the front lines, you're taking care of coronavirus patients, you're restarting all the other healthcare services, and taking care of the caregivers on the front line. We've heard about the rise in COVID-19 cases. What's causing this?
1: Well, currently, yes, you're right. You know, we we hit our surge. You know, uh, obviously back in April in the state of Michigan, and it was primarily centered in Southeast Michigan where the density of population is in the state. And we went off the charts back then. The numbers were uh, high in, in the hospitals. We were concerned about enough capacity, enough protective equipment. Uh, we didn't know a lot about the virus. I mean, we're learning every day about this virus. And so it was really a, a fire drill, Rich, to, uh, to to be honest about it. Um, this time around, then we then we got things under control. And Michigan actually was one of the state's that has, that has had it under control the longest and most consistently. And what I mean by that is our numbers, we got them down in the hospitals, we got them down in the communities. And for the months of roughly starting in June, June, July, August, you know, we were doing really well. And then all of a sudden now over the last particularly two to three weeks, uh, even yet today, we hit our high mark now uh, that we haven't seen since la- or early in May. And it's a little different this time. One, it's in different parts of the state. Uh, primarily in West Michigan, so we're seeing uh, spiking now of hospitalizations and cases in the western part of the state and the northern part of the state. When you look at the current surge that's going on, it's actually less in Wayne County, City of Detroit, although it's still picking up there, but nothing like uh, the rest of the state. Uh, the other difference is a little bit th- bit of a different demographic. Um, the deaths and, and infections still affect. Uh, elderly, and what I mean by elderly, and I always have to be careful in that to put myself in this category, but 60 and older is defined as the risk uh, area. And the predominant deaths and um, uh, problems with this virus still reside in nursing homes and things like that. But now we've seen college campuses surge. We've seen, you know, some people kind of get pandemic fatigue. So there's more gatherings, more parties, more bar kind of stuff. And that has really fueled um, this increase. And also, to be honest, the fatigue around the pandemic and also, as we know, our personal views, um, we don't have consistent use of uh, the guidelines around masks, social distancing and the like. So the combination of all that is putting us back on a trend uh, to go right back where we were in April if we don't put a stop to it.
0: So, Rob, that is very much one of those multifaceted causes you know noncompliance with health practices you know so unguarded gatherings would be a great example a college students going back to school and i think we should come back to that because i think that's a, a little different aspect but we've heard allegations that no we we've just doing more testing therefore we're finding more cases so Is it just a result of more testing or changes in the reporting in some way?
1: The part of that statement that is absolutely true, Rich, is that there is more testing. So, you know, right now we're hitting about 60,000 tests a day in the state of Michigan. Uh, That's far more than we were doing daily um, back in April. And that was partially because we didn't even have the availability of tests. So, you know, this line that you hear around, well, if you do more tests, you find more cases. Well, actually, that's true. However, the, that's not the metric to watch. Um, it's not even the case count that you really should watch. What you should watch is the positivity rate. Because what it tells you is, regardless of the number of tests you are, how many of those tests are actually finding positive cases of COVID. And, you know, the the guidelines around this uh, are pretty tight in terms of and pretty prescriptive in terms of where you start to to become worried. Now, um, what's considered, you know, manageable and low is anywhere from obviously under 3%. That's where you want to be on positivity rate. If you're at 3% or less, that tells you there's not a lot of spread. If you start to see uh, uh, increasing amounts as we are now in the state of Michigan, we start to reach other levels. And so we have like three counties in the state of Michigan right now that are at 10 to 15% positivity rate. Uh, so you can imagine if the testing volume is going up, as is the positivity rate, this virus is spreading. There's no debate about that. So it's unfortunate that some people only focus on, well, we're doing more testing, and now we're going to have more cases, when the fact is it's the conversion of the numbers of tests, two positive that we 're most worried about, we have sixteen counties that are at seven to ten percent. Now, mind you, the whole state of Michigan was around two and a half percent back in the middle of the summer, and now the state of Michigan, on average, is over six and a half percent. so this virus is spreading and isn 't that one of the greatest threats from this
0: virus? Is the asymptomatic spread? in that, you know, like surveillance on a college campus, and they're finding students who may have mild symptoms or may not be aware, even that they have been infected, that would raise the positive case count. But is there the next data on the stream? Would it be treatments? Would it be hospital occupancy? What would, clearly there's a risk because more people infected means more spread, even if some of
1: the people that get it in that arc are not going to be personally affected. Sure. Well, a couple, you, you raise a few issues I want to touch on because they're all really, really good points that get discussed,, you know, usually in silos. One is, let's talk about the students for a minute younger population who's getting infected right now. There's, there's a school of thought with some. Well, they're younger, they're healthier. The mortality rate's really low, so why are we worrying so much about that? I've heard that. Now, what they don't talk about is the vectoring of those uh, that virus through those young individuals back to their homes, back to their grandparents and their parents, and bringing that virus and being the carrier of that virus to those who are vulnerable and not healthy and would be at risk. So it, it doesn't give me any comfort to hear, well, the population's younger. Okay. Now, number two, um, hospitalizations are a lagging indicator. When you see hospitalizations going up, your problem started two to three weeks ago. And we are seeing hospitalizations rise, not just in my seven hospitals in Michigan, but across the health systems. We confer with each other continuously and we report our data every day to the state of Michigan. And we keep track of this. And the trends are going in the wrong direction which tells you that these infections started occurring at an increasing rate 2 to 3 weeks ago just because of the evolution and uh, uh, of the disease by the time people get sick enough to come to the hospital and our hospitalizations are much higher now the demographic uh, is still largely older people although some younger in the hospital and we don't have as many on ventilators in the ICU uh, as we did before and it isn't because Uh, necessarily that the virus has changed or even that the demographic has changed. But we've learned about this virus a little bit. So we have treatments available that um, we didn't have in April that we have now that are helping treat these patients. We know better to hold off on ventilators as long as possible because once you put a person on a ventilator, the mortality rate goes way up. I mean, all along the way we've learned. And that's why at least the good news is that we're having a better experience in the hospitals. But the death rate is still very high with this disease. And we we can't be faked out by my comment that the people aren't all in the ICU because, you know, the death rate back in April was probably 5 6%. The death rate of nursing home patients is 38%. I mean, it's huge. Um, and so now that the death rate is around 3%, nobody should feel good about that. How
0: prepared... our our hospitals right now? And and what have we done in terms of capacities for personnel, supplies, beds, and such?
1: Well, you know, we were scrambling in April, right? And we were doing everything we could to just keep our head above water. And we canceled all kinds of care and we just focused on the disease. Uh, A lot of our PPE that we received was coming from, uh, actually coming from China, the irony is, Uh, you know, our masks and all that were being made, uh, uh, the raw materials for the gowns that we used was came from Wuhan, China. You know, where oh, the, no. Like, oh, oh no, oh yeah, true story. So, you know, we we were, so what we've done over the course of the of the summer, when we've had a very manageable amount of this disease in our community and in our hospitals, we um, created other avenues for supply chain. We have um, filled the supply chain with adequate days of supply. We've gone to reusable. Um, Masks. We've gone to reusable gowns. We've done some things creatively to make sure that PPE wise were okay. We reconfigured our hospital and outpatient and office clinics uh, so that we can separate the uh, patients who are either have this disease or are suspected of having it to make sure we don't commingle populations. So we've been able to bring all of our work back, the non COVID work, in a very safe environment. Now, if you were to ask me if we get back to the levels of surge that we had in early April, um, I can't answer uh, whether or not we'd be able to hold on to all of our elective work. Um, right now, I'll give you an example. Our peak day on April 7th for Trinity, Michigan, we had roughly 600 inpatients uh, within, with COVID uh, in our hospitals, largely in three of them located in Southeast Michigan. Today, we hit a number of 172 compared to that 600. So we are nowhere near where we were, but I will tell you, we were at 30 just about four weeks ago. So you can see the trajectory.
0: I see. And my understanding is when you talk about elective surgery. or or elective care, we're talking about serious things, your colonoscopies, your cancer screenings, management of chronic disease, diabetes, and such. And we've seen this manifest itself in more acuity or more sicker patients. And you're trying to balance the needs of both of those within the constraints that you have in terms of facilities, supplies, and personnel. Very
1: very true. I mean, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a balancing act. Now, when you're in a situation like us, Rich, where we have multiple hospitals that are co-located uh, and also working very cooperatively, I should mention, the cooperation amongst the um, the health systems has been incredible. And, you know, we're able to load balance both not only with patients, but also with uh, resources. So if we have somebody who's uh, being overwhelmed, we have the ability to to work together to try to spread that load, and also help each other out. Um, and so we perfected that uh, during the initial surge in April. We did a very nice job of that. And so we're, we're already gearing up uh, in advance now, even though we're not near where we were in April. Uh, we're already working together with the other health systems and our incident command uh, so that we're ahead of this game if, it's, if this trend continues.
0: And I think all of our listeners should take comfort in knowing that we have really good people at all levels within the healthcare system. And at a later date, I do want to come back to some of the changes that we need to make in our health system, uh, paying for keeping people well versus uh, the number of things we do to fix them after they've become injured. I was actually looking at the CDC website and looking at obesity rates, which according to CDC, 42% of Americans today are considered obese. And then I went through the health impacts of obesity, which is, of course, heart disease and diabetes and cancers and, and many other things. And then they've started going into the demographics of the people that develop acute illnesses based on obesity, and it tracked where the worst impacts of COVID have hit. So clearly, we we need to start making sure that we're taking better care of ourselves before these pandemics hit, and maybe our immune systems might be a little better. Probably a bigger topic for another day, I would think.
1: Well, it is, but, you know, you're pointing to the issue that we've been now really spending time with, and that is how this pandemic really put a spotlight on health disparities uh, within our communities and how it hits certain communities harder because those communities exhibit a lot of the risk factors that you just mentioned, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and this virus preys on weakness. You know, this virus gets in some bodies and it kind of just uh, acts like a mild flu. And then it gets in some people's bodies and it senses weakness and it takes over. It's it's amazing uh, to watch what can happen to some people in a very short period of time with this virus where another person just feels bad for a couple of days. Um, and that's kind of the I think some of the misunderstanding that occurs is that some who have experienced it and had a mild experience are like, what's the big deal? Or these are young people. What's the big deal? What they don't realize is what we've seen in our hospitals, what we've seen in our clinics, and the devastation that this virus can do to a body is unbelievable.
0: Rob, we'll definitely be looking at the structure of our healthcare system. I know on the Common Bridge we've had now, well, you would be our sixth expert on healthcare, and interestingly, we've all come to a very similar conclusion, although very different starting points. Let me just jump into a quick lightning round here. So really short answers, or you can pass. Uh,
1: (laughs) Rapid fire, how effective are masks? Very effective. There's no debate on this one. I don't even know why there is a debate. Look,
0: if you look over at Taiwan, Hong Kong, other Asian countries that have dealt with other outbreaks, SARS, for example... You don't have to convince them. You tell them there's a a virus out there. Everybody masks up, practices social distancing. And if you look at the numbers, they have very, very low infection rates and very few fatalities.
1: Think about one thing, Rich. We don't even need science on this one. We know one thing for a fact that nobody's uh, argued about, that this um, is an airborne uh, virus. It, It transmits in the air by our breath and by our spit and anything that comes out of our nose and mouth. So if you know that as a fact, then why would
0: you argue about a mask? Well, I know it makes perfect sense to me. How about hand hygiene? Is that the only cleaning practice we need? I know at the beginning of this that people were washing their groceries and that type of thing. And I guess that perhaps uh, the idea that this transmitted on surfaces is gone down. But hand
1: hygiene that remains important, yes, absolutely. And and anything your hands touch, you know, there's they they there's been guidelines out that you don't have to necessarily wash your groceries and all that thing. But you know, your hands go to your face, and um and that's why you know as many times as people touch their face, uh, that's why you know we want to keep the hands clean. But the hands touch your cell phones, the the hands. Even the outside, some people make a mistake with their masks. You know, they, they can have that virus on the outside of their mask, and then they put their hand on the front of their mask. They take their mask off. They take their hand to their face. Oh, my gosh. They just defeated the whole purpose of the mask. So keeping the hands clean because it is the number one transmitter of bacteria and virus uh, that, we, that we know. Rob,
0: looking at the data back in April, I had the idea of the day that, you know, based on where we saw the data uh, about who was affected and such, that if you're under 45, you don't have any symptoms, you're not near an aged or a health-compromised person, probably okay to get back to work or school. True,
1: false, some of both. If you've been exposed um, or you think you've been exposed there are very specific uh, recommendations and guidelines on what you should do, regardless of your age. And that is to quarantine yourself. Uh, And it depends, you know, I have seen the guidelines from 10 to 14 days, because you can develop uh, an asymptomatic uh, spread of this virus. So Uh, No, you you need to. It's not age specific of uh, when you got to be cautious and not be cautious. You should quarantine. I want to
0: jump into a quick lightning round relative to schools and where I personally witnessed the economic disparities between affluent areas and disadvantaged areas when kids can't get to school they're missing out on years of development and often the only safe place they can get to france and germany and now ireland have issued new lockdowns but this time they're excluding schools and we had judge milton mack on episode 38 he is a expert in public health And then episode 67, we had Dr. Martin Koldorf, who talked about the impacts on public health from the continued stay-at-home orders, not only delayed treatments, but especially around school children. Do we know enough now to safely open schools and keep everything else restricted?
1: Well, as you know, there's been schools that have gone completely virtual, and then there are schools that are using a hybrid model or are having students come in and if you notice the current surge that we're going through right now no one's pointing to the schools and particularly the K through 12 as the source of these uh, of this surge um i have personally witnessed schools that are uh, following some excellent guidelines and able to bring kids into school safely uh and i think where we when we talk about the colleges and i know of a couple examples where the colleges have gone through great pain to make it safe It isn't the school itself that's creating the problem. It's the gatherings, the parties, and the things of that kind of behavior. So when we look at what's going on now, Rich, I think personally, I think a lot of people ascribe that you can safely open your schools, but you have to um, marry that with very diligent um, discipline around the things we're seeing now that are causing an increase in our cases. Rob, what did not
0: we not cover today that we maybe should have discussed?
1: You know, I think, Rich, I I, I will tell you that I I'm watching you know the dialogue right now and, and the fatigue factor, and I get it, and you know this hope of a vaccine right around the corner, which we know is is coming. We're we're, we're going to run a course on this and. You know, the nursing homes right now are still a huge, huge concern. They're not getting a lot of airtime right now, but they are a a, a huge concern. And I think what we really have to do is emphasize with your listeners, emphasize with everybody that from a healthcare perspective, and I'm speaking now on behalf of uh, intensivists, nurses, infectious disease experts who are sleeping very little these days, taking care of patients. They're begging and asking everyone to buckle down for the next few months and get through this. There are so many avoidable deaths right now. It breaks our heart that we could have avoided a lot of the 7,500 plus deaths we've had in the state of Michigan, 600 of those in my own hospitals. And, And these individuals die alone, okay? They die alone. And so I know that unless a person feels like they've had this personal experience, they may not believe this. I am telling you, without any kind of uh, agenda other than care, that we need to really buckle down and work together to beat this thing and get through to that vaccine. So that's I wanted to at least say that at the end because it's a, a, a very deep-seated belief on my part. I don't think we can add
0: anything to that. We've been listening to healthcare senior executive and leader, Rob Casalew of the Trinity Health System, on this special edition of the Common Bridge relative to COVID-19 and the numbers. Everyone, please stay safe. Whatever you're doing, however active you are, wear your mask, keep social distance, wash your hands, and look out for your fellow human beings. This is Rich Helpe signing off on the Common Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.